Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm pleased today to begin by thanking Justin E., Ian W., and Joel L. for their direct donations to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And uh, also thanks goes out to my new Patreon supporters, Christian S., Cecilia P., and Lucas T., whose monthly donations, uh, combined with those of a hundred or so other fellow saloners, are helping to keep the lights on here in the salon as well. So uh, thank you one and all. Now, uh, today's program is one that's quite special to me. It is the 1997 talk that Myron Stoloroff delivered at the very first Mind States conference. Now, if you're a long-time listener here in the salon, well, then you're already familiar with Myron's very significant contributions to both psychedelic research and to the world of audio technology as well. But for our newcomers here, let me uh, just give you a few headlines. Before becoming involved in the world of psychedelics, Myron Stoloroff was the co-designer of the Ampex Model 200A reel-to-reel tape recorder, which, uh, after receiving funding from Bing Crosby, became the first commercial reel-to-reel tape recorder available to the public at large. In essence, uh, the march of history that has led to today's world of digital audio recording, well, that march began with a little tape deck that Myron co-designed. So, the next time you're listening to your favorite music on your portable player, give a little nod of thanks to Myron Stoloroff. Of course, here in the salon, we know Myron for something else. Because anyone who's read T-Call or P-Call, Sasha Shulgin's massive index of psychedelic molecules, well, the first thing you most likely read were the trip reports in the back of the book. And Myron not only participated in most of those experiences, he also interviewed all of the other participants and wrote the detailed reports, the ones that served as the basis for Sasha's trip comments in the back of his books. Additionally, in 1960, Myron launched the International Foundation for Advanced Study in Menlo Park. Interestingly, uh, many of the big names of the early personal computer revolution were also participants in the psychedelic research that took place at Menlo Park. In all, there were 350 participants in that guided psychedelic research. So, if you add up all of the group experiences that Myron racked up during the research for P-Call and T-Call, plus the 350 trips at Menlo Park, and, uh, well, the almost countless small group experiences that Myron led for friends like me, well, my guess is that he personally participated in researching and guiding more psychedelic experiences than all of the federally approved research collectively that's taken place in the United States since 1990. Myron Stoloroff was a giant of an elder, and we really owe a great deal to him. Now, uh, the talk that I'm about to play for you was posted on YouTube by John Hanna, who was also the producer of the Mind States conferences. Recently, uh, John told me that he's in the process of going through the hundreds of hours of video that he's recorded over the years, and he intends to post them to his YouTube channel. And I'll link to that in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. But for me, this talk is doubly interesting because I was fortunate to have had many visits with Myron where he talked about ways in which psychedelics could become aids in a Buddhist meditation practice. So getting to listen to this, his first public discussion of this work, was a real treat. And now I'm going to join you and listen to it once again. Thank you for that introduction. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here. Uh, my wife, Jean, and I live in a rather remote area, and uh, we don't run into very many people during the week, and unfortunately, a lot of them we do run into uh, don't necessarily share our interests. So it's just great to be here with a room full of people, of like-minded people. So this is great. So thank you. To me, one of the really great mysteries of our time 
is how we can have something as valuable as psychedelics and yet have our government and the public at large have such an absolutely twisted view of it. For myself, uh, I'm on record as saying that LSD was the greatest discovery that man ever made. <laughs> and I said that quite a long time ago, maybe 40 years or so, and certainly nothing has happened to change my mind. As a matter of fact, it's just been reconfirmed over and over again. But for me, uh, well, the reason that I, that I said that is because, as you all know here, LSD allows you to explore your mind, and there's nothing greater in the universe than mind. So obviously, if that's true, then uh, anything which gives us access to mind to learn more about it and to learn how to use it has got to be one of the greatest tools available, or the greatest tool available. For myself, one of the main things that I found, uh, I came into this world with a very, very painful birth experience, and I think I resented that for decades. It took me an awful long time to get over the resentment of having to come through and all that pain. And I also found that I uh, repressed a great deal of anger, and uh, because it was hard for me to be honest with people and say what I really thought and felt, and this created self-hatred, which piled up anger. So I spent a lot of time uh, getting rid of repressed anger. It uh, took me a long time to really genuinely listen to other people because I was uh, wrapped up in myself and wrapped up in my head most of the time. And it's been a great joy to open up and really become more aware of others, uh, to listen carefully to them, which I incidentally I learned primarily through Ann Shogun, whom you're going to hear later this afternoon. And I think I learned a lot about learning to love. And that, of course, is extremely satisfying. But I think probably greater than anything, I found that God is absolutely, utterly real. In fact, probably the only reality, and that this world was created in the most unfathomable, magnificent love, and that we can all learn to discover and enter into that and be that, and that's the hope for all of us. Now, there are a lot of reasons uh, why psychedelics are so controversial, and I never tire of thinking about it or discussing it with other people. Uh, and you heard a lot about it this morning. Both speakers this morning pointed out a number of reasons. And I'm just going to mention three here right now. In Western civilization, I think there isn't any question that God, that science is God, and most people follow our scientists. And unfortunately, our, uh, our mainstream scientists decided quite some time ago that if you couldn't measure it, it wasn't science. So this has left out a great, great deal of things that are really very important, like consciousness, awareness, feeling, and even spirit. And uh, psychedelics, as probably most of you in this room know, open the door to discovering all of those things in greater depth and with greater understanding. Uh, but uh, we humans are, are sort of queer in some ways, you know. We learn things and we get invested in them and then our status depends on them. So we don't like to give them up for other things that come along. And in fact, the other things that come along are sometimes seen as quite threatening. So. Uh, this reductionist, materialistic approach, uh, I think, is highly responsible for the lack of understanding of psychedelics among scientists, uh, many of our mainstream scientists anyway, and uh, some of our government officials. <clears throat> One of the wonders is, of course, is the, that psychedelics do open up all of these areas for greater understanding. <clears throat> Another reason that psychedelics may not be popular and this is a point that I want to emphasize over and over and over again. I'll probably mention it several times during my talk. But if you want to get the most out of a psychedelic experience, 
you have to be honest. And you know the kind of world we live in. Our own nation is, what, running close to $6 trillion in debt. Uh, you can hardly believe what our politicians tell us since they're mainly interested in getting elected. Uh, we see evidence of all kinds of irrationality, uh, of violating basic life principles, such as simply honoring and respecting each other. So a lot of people simply don't want to look at things uh, directly and squarely and acknowledge them. But another reason is that all of us carry within us what Jung so aptly called the shadow. And the shadow material are all those things we don't like about ourselves or about life, and we stuff them away with this powerful mechanism that the mind has so that we are totally unaware of them. And in a good psychedelic experience, uh, and I'll uh, go into a little bit more detail on this a little later, psychedelics do open up the unconscious mind and our shadow material begins to be revealed. Now, for most of us, the things that went in to make the shadow occurred very early in our life and at the current time of our life with more maturity and more understanding we would benefit a great deal by learning what this shadow material is and how it's adversely affecting our life. But a lot of it is painful, a lot of it uh, shows that the way that we are functioning is wrong and we don't welcome it. And uh, consequently, uh, many people uh, try to prevent gaining this knowledge and resisting is painful. And the more you resist in a psychedelic experience, this is, again, I'm sure most of you know, it gets more and more uncomfortable. And it can even be so bad with some people that they go into psychotic reactions to avoid looking at the material that's coming up. And this is what led to our medical profession doing these things, psychotomimetics. But it's very advantageous to learn the shadow material because it takes energy to hold it down. And if you let it surface and you resolve it, you free that energy and you have more energy available for life. You find that uh, also as you uh, release these, uh, this, the burden of this repressed material, you have more access to your real resources, your awareness grows, your creativity grows, so there's a great deal of merit in doing this. So it's very helpful if you can be honest and let the experience flow. <clears throat> the third thing that I'm uh, going to talk about is uh, the reason for the controversy. Uh, there's uh, a lot of our, again, a lot of our mainstream scientists and uh, other people are very fixed in the allopathic uh, view of medicine and uh, they tend to look at psychedelics as a drug that does something to you. It produces weird visions, uh, it produces bright lights or God only knows what, but somehow the drug is doing this. And again, <clears throat> those of you who understand these things know that that's uh, uh, not an appropriate way to look at them at all. What psychedelics do, they're openers, and they are facilitators, and they allow us to do a lot of these things. So <clears throat> consequently, at least, <clears throat> I, I don't claim to be a scholar, and there's a lot of material that I haven't read, but I have uh, not noticed anywhere in the literature that there is a concept of the trained user. Uh, because if these are openers and facilitators, it seems very logical that you should be able to learn how to use them more and more effectively, learn more and more about using them, and consequently become more and more skilled and become a trained user. So one of my personal objectives is to try to get this concept into the literature to get people to recognize these things uh, more for what they are. So a lot of uh, what I'm going to say is going to uh, uh, talk about what is a trained user and how do you become one. But before I do that, uh, just so we're all on common ground, uh, I'm going to describe a little bit about what psychedelics do. I hope this isn't boring to you because I think most of you know most of this already, 
And from the little I've seen so far, I'm sure there are a lot of you that have explored with a much greater range and much greater depth than I. But uh, I will go over this just as a way of sort of pulling our minds together so uh, we can focus on the same things uh, as I bring up certain issues. But one of the things that that, uh, psychedelics do, it has a way of dissolving mindsets. Uh, You know, the mind is very powerful, and uh, we can focus our minds in such a way that we can make some things appear as though they're really true, (laughs) even though they're not. And uh, uh, hypnotism is a very good example of what can be done with the mind, and I like to quote from uh, Charles Tart's book, uh, Waking Up, where he claims we're all in a state of mass hypnosis. And, uh, which I think is pretty true. Um, and one of the examples he gives of, uh, with a good hypnotic subject that you can, uh, you can uh, take a rag and soak it with ammonia and you can tell the subject that uh, he's going to put this up to your nose and you can inhale d- deeply, but you won't smell anything. So he does this, the person inhales deeply, and sure enough, he doesn't smell anything. If you or I did it, it would just burn the hell out of our nose and lungs. It would be a very painful experience. But sometimes we forget, I think, from these examples of hypnotism, just how powerful the mind is. So psychedelics can dissolve these kinds of mindsets. And one of the most powerful mindsets that we have is the ability to make things unconscious. And one of the things I've been impressed with in my work over the years, uh, you know, when we start talking about the unconscious and it gets to be kind of a buzzword and everybody's talking about it, then we get to think that we really know what the unconscious is. But I'm here to tell you that if it's unconscious, you do not have a clue. I mean, that, that's what unconscious means. You absolutely do not know. And it's a real surprise when it comes up. <laughs> and so this, uh, again, just reviewing uh, a large range of experience, and, uh, you know, this involves some... 35 years of exploration, both with myself uh, and people that I know closely and research subjects and with a wide range of materials. Uh, you know, some if you live long enough, that, that's really about the greatest asset I have here, I think. I've lived longer than most of you. And so you get a chance to see how all these things shake out as time goes on. And um, anyway, as you... Uh, uh, as I look at all those experiences and what has happened, I've come to feel that probably one of the most uh, important things that psychedelics do is open the door to the unconscious mind. And when you do that, you run into a great many things, and I'm going to greatly o- oversimplify here, because mind is really infinite, and there's so many aspects and so many ranges And uh, so I don't want to be too simplistic, but I just want to touch on a few things that we can discuss further. But first, you run into feelings that have been repressed, and uh, and you run into values that have been repressed. You discover that you've been operating out of certain kinds of values that you didn't even know that you held, and the same for desires. Uh, We've repressed powerful hurts and betrayals. Uh, Another thing that happens as our unconscious material is released that we discover that in many areas we behaved inappropriately, like in my case, I often don't listen, uh, don't acknowledge the other person enough, uh, don't pay enough attention to communication, and that really everyone, the core of everyone is divine, and we really need to acknowledge this in each other, and uh, the way we often behave, we don't do that. And and this comes to light and can be understood. Other aspects of the mind, and here we get into the more positive things, 
But uh, there's an area of the mind from which intuition comes. There's an area from which creativity comes, and these things can be opened up. One of the amazing things with psychedelics, and particularly some of them, like ayahuasca, it's unbelievable the kind of imagery that comes. And uh, it's almost incomprehensible to contemplate what the source of all that is. And then finally, the most important experiences of all is to discover that, the, that Jung was right. He said that we have a real self, and uh, which I'll call here the authentic self. And this is a fantastic discovery that beyond our ego and our individual personality, we are this enormous self that's related to absolutely everything in the universe. And at the core of our being is the source of this universal love and unending wisdom. And this is essentially the mystical experience that's been reported in most of the major traditions. This is really the peak experience. This is about the ultimate that man can achieve, is to discover this aspect of himself and the fact that he really is, he or she really is one with the whole universe. And dissolving these mindsets makes all of the things I've just discussed available. <clears throat> so, in that case, what's the problem in becoming a trained user? <clears throat> well, I think it, if you look over the list, you can see that there are a number of things there that, that sound very attractive. We'd like to open up our creativity. We'd like to open up our intuition. We'd like to have this profound mystical experience. But at the same time, we're opening up all this other repressed material. And so it turns out that if you open yourself with a psychedelic and hope to get these vaster dimensions, uh, you find that they're often hidden behind the repressed material, and this repressed material is demanding attention. So uh, in a lot of cases, you can't even focus your mind on these other areas until this repressed material is discharged. So. I'd like to define then what a trained user is. A trained user is one who's learned to hold his mind perfectly still, absolutely quietly still, without thought. And when you do this then, wherever you focus attention, you can hold your attention completely steadily on the object. And if you're able to do that, what you find is that the object of your attention will begin to unfold if you're patient, if you're detached, if you're open. As you look at a thought, a concept, or a physical object, you begin to see it in more and more dimensions and more and more aspects. And this is what a trained user can do. And I think you can see that if you can do this, there's no limit to what you can learn. Because anything that you look at you can begin to explore in more and more dimensions. And really, what stops us, you know, it's almost like, <clears throat> like uh, they say about prayer, be careful what you ask for. But uh, I have found psychedelic experiences that I think prayer really, really works. And then later on you find out, well, gee whiz, it's not working. <laughs> and when you look at it, at least when I've looked at it, what I found is, yeah, it's working. I just didn't want to see the answer. Because <laughs> there are a lot of unconscious uh, repressions. Uh, there are defenses, areas that we don't want to open up. So the more that we can open ourselves and clear up these unconscious areas, uh, the more ability we will have to quiet our mind and hold our mind steady and use, it, use our mind as a learning tool. Now, as you go through this process, <clears throat> if you agree that you uh, want to have the experience of just simply releasing to the experience and, and discharging this material and taking what comes, uh, you go through a stage of progressions, and uh, I think this was beautifully written by Willis Harmon in a paper that we wrote in 1962, uh, The Psychedelic Experience, A New Concept in Psychotherapy. 
And he described three stages. Uh, the first stage is the evasive stage. As you first start getting into the experience, uh, the ego really resists the information that's coming. And uh, depending on how invested you are in maintaining your, the self-image you've created, uh, uh, the more you hold on to it, the more uncomfortable it is as new material tries to insert itself. And uh, people can experience nausea, people can experience uh, muscular discomfort, uh, the imagery can be very peculiar, plastic tubes and things and, and uh, uh, drawings that uh, don't seem to have any particular meaning or anything. But if you release to this and allow yourself to keep going, uh, after a while you get into uh, a new stage which is called the symbolic stage. Now I'm not saying that you're going to go through all these three stages in a single experience, but uh, if you're committed to this work and you want to continue, excuse me, if you want to continue, we, you will eventually progress through these three stages. So the next stage is the symbolic stage. So you find the imagery turning uh, to things like landscapes and people, and it can begin to get very beautiful and peaceful. But you begin to notice that as you watch the people and what they're doing and their activities, you begin to see yourself in, in all these different situations. You begin to find out that uh, uh, you're learning a great, great deal about yourself because you're seeing a lot of your inner self projected out there in the symbolic imagery. So this is uh, a very useful part of the experience where you can learn a great deal. As you continue that and uh, uh, continue to flow with the experience and, and, and allow uh, the discharge of material to continue, which takes form really in imagery. As long as imagery is flowing, it's usually the accompaniment of things being released in your inner psyche. So if you simply allow that process to proceed, uh, sooner or later that will begin to clear up and you will enter the stage of what Harmon called the stage of immediate perception. Uh, in this stage, hallucinations stop, the imagery stops, you look out at the world and you see it just as it is, except tremendously enhanced with light, beauty, and charged with meaning. But you know, things have stopped moving, a tree is a tree, and the sky is a sky, and the cloud is a cloud but with a richness that you'd never before apprehended. And uh, it's that when you reach this stage where you can look directly out at things, uh, you've reached the stage which the trained user is trying, trying to uh, accomplish. Now there's several other things besides just simply releasing to the experience as I've described. There are things you can do to accelerate this process of uh, reaching the stage of holding the mind quiet. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, I found useful, both with myself and others, uh, there's a value in using low doses. Uh, I'm not saying replace high doses. Uh, <clears throat> but there's a value at times in using low doses because a lot of people don't like low doses because uh, when you take a low dose, very often the experience gets uncomfortable and people don't like these uncomfortable feelings. So what they like to do is take a lot more substance and, and sort of rocket themselves out into the outer dimensions, into the transpersonal, uh, which is fine. The transpersonal experience, experience is certainly unbeatable, but when you do that... <laughs> When you do that, after you come back, it turns out that with a lot of us, uh, uh, the experience fades and you're still stuck with these same old things that, uh, that you vaulted over. And one way to deal with that is to take lower doses, uh, and if you're having uncomfortable experiences, accept it. Uh, focus on them, breathe through them, and if you give them your attention and stick with them, they will resolve themselves. And when they do, you've discharged the driving force behind them and you've freed yourself. And you find that after the experience, you feel you've made a real gain that 
that stays with you and, and you feel a great deal better for having done that work. So I find it's very useful to do that uh, from time to time. Another thing that's very helpful is to uh, uh, take advantage of the tremendous lore and wisdom of Buddhism who've uh, really developed a great number of methods for training and disciplining the mind. Uh, my own path has been following a teacher in uh, Tibetan, Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist meditation and this I personally found has been very helpful. Uh, there are a number of practices that are used uh, but one of the best for developing mental stability is pure and simple breath awareness. By simply holding your attention on the breath and the technique that worked best uh, for me and for a number of people who were sharing uh, the same retreats is just simply focusing on the nostrils and uh, becoming aware of the air moving in through the nostrils. Try to feel the passage of air. Try to feel the air moving over your lips. And just keeping your focus of attention there. And the same on the out breath. And it's a very simple exercise. Sounds boring. <laughs> but uh, it has a rich payoff. Uh, you'll find as you're doing this, especially if you're a novice, that it's very difficult to hold your attention there and not have thoughts go through your mind, but you simply acknowledge them and dismiss them, and as soon as you can, get back to uh, uh, focusing on the breath. And you'll find that <clears throat> when you've been able to do this for 10 or 15 minutes steady, you begin to find an inner peace developing. And as this continues, it will in time grow to euphoria, and in time it will even grow to bliss. Uh, and uh, the fact that you've been able, able to hold the mind steady means that you have developed stability, and when you develop stability, uh, that opens the road to clarity. And the same kind of clarity I'm talking about when you can focus under a psychedelic on, a, on an object and hold your attention on it and have it reveal itself. I'll mention the, the two main obstacles to this kind of mind discipline. Uh, uh, the two obstacles are grasping and aversion. Uh, by grasping, what is meant, and uh, uh, if you do this practice, you're going to discover that you do this a lot. And... Uh, but this is the effort to change things to try to make reality what you want it to be. And I think you'll find that most of us have a lot invested in that. We really do a lot to make things come out just exactly as we want. And uh, even after I discharged a really major, major dynamic of grasping, I found under that that there were more and more subtle levels and more and more subtle levels. But... Uh, Eventually, as you learn not to grasp, you do reach this point where you can hold the mind still, and it's very rewarding. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing that you have to overcome is aversion. And uh, this is uh, the result of, that, of the fact that when you hold your mind perfectly still, uh, I mentioned before that when you develop stability, you get the the uh, peace and the calm, and of course that's very nice. But also when you're holding your mind still, you're opening the door to your own unconscious. So your repressed material can come up. And that's as it should be. You, you want to allow it to come up, accept it, acknowledge it, and uh, let it move along and not get involved in it. But sometimes this repressed material is very painful. So you find that you have defensive mechanisms which prevent it from coming up, and that's that is aversion. So if you can overcome aversion and simply allow the material to come up and be discharged, then you see what I've been describing is really the same thing as releasing to a psychedelic experience. So uh, in a way it does accomplish the same result. Uh, it takes more practice, more discipline, a longer period of time, but uh, it is a way uh, of enhancing your growth towards stability. Now, if you really do develop stability, you will be able to hold your mind perfectly still. And if you hold your mind perfectly still, you will see that you become aware of other levels of reality. And I like to call this 
creating the empty space that God can enter, that when you can hold your mind absolutely still, uh, which, which is not easy. You only have tried a few, a few seconds to find out how difficult it is, unless you've already gotten practice in this. But when you hold your mind perfectly still, the, the actual presence can begin to be felt, and it, it's a marvelous experience, and it opens the door to a great, great many things. So that's the trained user and some of the key ways of getting there. And uh, now I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, uh, deepening and developing your meditation practice if this is something that you're interested in. And uh, I've already mentioned that this is an important discipline for developing mental stability. And uh, what you find is as you develop mental stability, your psychedelic experiences become more and more rewarding because you're able to stay focused on the things that are really important to contribute the most to your psychedelic experience. On the other hand, the use of psychedelics in an appropriate manner are very, is very, very useful to accelerating and deepening the practice of meditation. Now, if you're going to do this, <clears throat> I think it's fairly obvious that... Um, you have to do this with a low dose of psychedelics because uh, if you take a large dose and a whole lot of things are happening, you're being propelled into outer space or all kinds of imagery is passing through, obviously you're not going to be able to hold your mind still. So you do need to use a moderate dose. Uh, one of the best substances that I've personally found uh, to do this kind of practice for deepening, med uh, for deepening meditation practice is 2CB. Uh, it's uh, short-acting. It's uh, not real pushy like some of the other, like LSD, for example. Uh, and somehow, it, um, you know, this is purely subjective. I don't have any real way to know that it's true, but it seems like it really leaves you in a better place at the end of the day. But others work. Uh, if you're going to use LSD, I'd say the dose level should be about 25 to 50 micrograms, depending on how much it takes for, to, uh, for you to get a full-blown experience. Uh, 2CT2, uh, 2CT7 are, are excellent uh, vehicles. Uh, I spend a lot of time with the phenethylamines, like them very much, find them very useful. Uh, they're not as pushy as LSD, and so it lends, they lend themselves well to this uh, kind of practice. Uh, they're about 10 milligrams, I think, to be an appropriate dose. Now, here's the advantages of uh, practicing meditation while under the influence. Uh, first of all, there is some opening, and... Uh, you will notice that you're, as uh, the psychedelic takes effect, uh, that your awareness does grow and you become more and more aware of what's happening. And if you're practicing meditation, you can begin to see that there are very subtle things that you do that either interfere with the practice, interfere with deepening it, or else accelerate the practice and make it more rewarding. So you're just opening up a dimension of... Uh, more being able to be more aware of the different things you're doing within yourself that affect the meditation practice. So it helps you learn more rapidly while uh, the more appropriate things to do. Sort of like learning biofeedback. One of the other advantages of uh, using a low dose of psychedelic, uh, the fact that it is doing some releasing uh, is bringing more material into awareness and it makes it harder to hold your focus. So actually what this does, uh, it gives you a chance to explore and learn that you do have resources within you which are stronger than you might have imagined and that these resources are strong enough to begin to control this accelerated uh, flow of imagery or whatever that's coming from the psychedelic so that you can learn to hold your mind steady in spite of this uh, extra activity. And what this means is 
that you're developing additional volition, which is a very great asset. And uh, you're learning more about your own inner strength. But developing this, this uh, volition, uh, I like to call developing a God muscle. But you're learning more and more how to use your resources to accomplish the stability required to deepen your meditation practice. And I think I've mentioned, but I'll repeat it, that uh, as you develop this mental stability, it does indeed uh, uh, enhance your psychedelic experiences and allows you to go deeper in them. So they're mutually reinforcing. And one of the advantages of uh, learning to deepen your meditation with uh, psychedelics in this way is you find that there is a... uh, a great carryover that when you deepen the experience uh, while you're under the influence that you can reach just about the same proficiency in your ordinary practice. So it's almost like making a step function increase in your effectiveness in carrying out the practice. But I have to say that uh, from my own experience the, the ultimate best thing that works is to find where, in, in, in a psychedelic experience, to find that place where you're tuned in to the inner teacher. And I think more and more you learn to find that there is a specific place to hold your attention where you're tuned in to the source of what's happening. And if you can simply stay with that, uh, regardless of whatever happens, be committed to maintaining that relationship that that's where the, re- the most rewarding experiences happen. At least that's from my experience. Now I'd like to say a few words about forestalling aging. Uh, I'm 77 years old, and uh, I'm here to tell you that there are a lot of things about getting old that are not very comfortable. The things that bother me the most, I find that uh, I get tired more easily, uh, that mental activity dulls off. Uh, uh, I like to uh, exercise and climb mountains, but I find my muscles are much more sore and stiff. Uh, and I find arthritic symptoms develop. And there are ways that you can uh, help these things. Um, one of the things, <laughs> uh, one of the things comes from the way you lead your life. And I find that honesty and responsibility are a great help because a lot of things that make me tired are sort of what, what I guess Earhart Werner would call uh, uncompleted cycles. You decide that you're going to do certain things and then you don't do them. And I find in me that that sort of hangs as a psychic weight and that when you finally get around and do them, that weight is removed. So it, it's another way of being honest, really, is to... Uh, you know, is to carry out your intentions. Uh, in my life, uh, exercise is extremely important, and I think we're blessed to live near the mountains. Uh, I find climbing up into the mountains extremely rewarding, both for the physical beauty, but also for the effect on the body. And I have a lot of friends who are always telling me about all kinds of nutrients. Gosh, there are things that, that are really, really helpful. But I want to tell you that the thing that helps more than anything is a good psychedelic experience. <laughs> I, I found that all those, ex, all those symptoms that I described can all disappear. <laughs> Because what's happening is you reach down and, and tap the life force. <clears throat> and as, as this life force is released into your body, it's healing. It's rejuvenating. And uh, I don't know anything that does it better. Uh, one thing that I do want to say about it, <clears throat> and uh, uh, one thing that, uh, that I learned... Uh, uh, through some very dramatic advice from my inner self, is that uh, there is a trap in using psychedelic experiences to solve your problems. 
because it's so easy, and I did this for a long time, it's so easy when you get tired or loaded up or uncomfortable to have another experience, and they are rejuvenating and they produce a lot of clarity, but I found that in myself, it wasn't too many weeks before I was back in the same place again. And what really helps is to realize that the things that drag you down are the things you're not really confronting and dealing with in life. And if you make up your mind to deal with those things and resolve them, you can maintain the state of being. So I have a rule for myself, which is, uh, first of all, to realize how really blessed and wonderful the psychedelic experience is and how, how fortunate we are to have this available and to have these marvelous areas of the psyche and the mind available to us, the, the wonder and beauty that we can learn to see around us. And this needs to be fully honored. And one of the ways you honor it is by taking what you learn and putting it into effect in your life. And I have found that doing my best to do this, I still find that there are times when uh, another experience seems to be fruitful. And I find if I've really done my homework, if I've really tried to bring these things into effect in my life, then the next experience is much, much better. So uh, that's worked very well for me, and I've become very aware of it. And it's also true that as you deepen your meditation, you find that you're doing the same thing. You're tapping that inner core. You're tapping the inner light. It is rejuvenating. It is healing. And after a while, you find that more and more you can replicate what's going on with psychedelics with your meditation practice. And it's extremely rewarding because there's a wonderful feeling that comes with that. Because somehow it feels to me like it's more mine. That I've done this, it feels good, I'm able to stay there. And furthermore, I've learned when uh, things do get bad or uncomfortable, I've learned more how to deal with it on the spot and not have to turn to an experience to resolve it. And I found that very satisfying. So, <clears throat> I wish you, I hope that this has been helpful, and I wish you well in your own explorations. And uh, uh, I hope that we can meet in the kingdom of God where the, the experience is fantastic love and incredible beauty and the oneness that we all share. So, thank you. for questions, and I really love answering questions more than talking, so, yes. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Back in the 60s when I had the great high doses, and then I kind of let it go, I got involved with Tibetan uh, meditation and on and off for 25 years. I just recently started with this low dose. Absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, the, uh, I was in a 10-day Vipassana of totally silent retreat, and about the seventh day I took 50 uh, 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 milligrams of uh, uh, MDMA. One, because I learned from psychedelic, I learned about it. I thought how to meditate, when I'm in my meditation, I learned how to work with the psychedelic. I just thank you very much for saying yes to what I think. Thank you very much for confirming it, because one of the tragedies of our time with our drug laws, you can't carry on more research. And uh, 
If it weren't for the drug laws and we were free to do research, I'd be very happy to spend the rest of my life in researching this particular aspect of psychedelics, of how can you deepen your meditation practice so you can have this state as a permanent state. There are some people I know that say, oh my God, you know, you're reaching too high. It's just not in the cards. But that is not so. That is not so, and it's just delightful and wonderful to be able to get into these states and maintain them. So uh, I hope uh, more of you will, will seek it out. I would just say that for me, it's beginning to happen in my life. It's beginning to happen where it kind of flows along in an everyday uh, life mm-hmm. in the way of me. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Gary. Yes? Thank you so much, Myron. For about 30 years, I've had these dual paths of meditation and the theogenic path. And uh, it's a never-ending uh, discovery. And in the people I associate with, one of the, a lot of people I encounter, they either are for meditation and in so being maybe opposed to uh, substances. And then on the other hand, people uh, 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 encourage that path and, and, and meditation is or isn't a part of it. But one of the, the, one of the things I've found is for meditators who have not adopted theogens in any way. This repressed material is an obstacle to not only experiencing the bliss of meditation, but allowing meditation to be a consistent avenue or path in their lives. And uh, your encouragement of the lower doses and the patience that you yourself embody in working through repressed material, I just, you're a hero of mine, and I just want to thank you very very much. Gosh, I don't know how much of this I can take. (laughs) Thank you very much. But while you brought up that subject, one of the things that really moved me was uh, uh, in the uh, fall issue 1996 of the Tibetan, uh, not the Tibetan, but the Buddhist uh, magazine Tricycle. Uh, Many of you may know they devoted that issue to psychedelics. And the responses were all over the map. There were a number of people that found psychedelics very helpful. There are others that thought that it was absolutely destructive of their practice and had no use whatever. And uh, I, I really couldn't sit still with that. So uh, I've written a paper, and uh, the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, I think, is accepting it. It's accepted uh, uh, current to... Uh, uh, accepting the revisions that they've asked for and that I've made. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it'll take about a year before that appears, but I deal a lot with uh, this issue that you brought up because it, it's sad that just because people find a path, they have to reject other paths. God, if there's anything we know from psychedelics, that there are so many paths, and every individual is different, and every individual needs to find his own path, the one, and this is, the Buddha says this, that ultimately, no matter what you practice, ultimately, you have to be guided by your own intuition, and that's, that's what really counts. Yes? Sorry, can you tell us about your new book? Uh, Thank you, I'd like to. Well, I have to thank uh, Anne and Sasha Shogun for this, for pointing it out that that there was a gentleman who had done a great deal of work with psychedelic therapy and had developed a lot of new techniques and processes. And they, they knew that I was struggling to be a writer and looking for good things to write about, and they suggested that I write about him. So uh, my wife, Jean, and I uh, arranged to interview him, and he's a remarkable human being, one of the most lovable human beings I've ever met. And we had the good fortune to spend a lot of time with him, and uh, he told us how he got started in the work. Uh, uh, how they, how he uh, learned how to have good, to uh, have subjects have good experiences. I think one of the things in the book that I, that I've just got to share because this really impressed me. Uh, in the course of our discussion, he said that uh, in time, many many people had come to him that had, had a large number of psychedelic experiences. Some of them had three hundred. 
some as many as 500 experiences. And he said, to a man, to a man, they said that after they had their experience with him, they said, I never had an LSD experience before. So I think that gives you an idea of the person that he was and the effectiveness of his methods. Uh, He worked with a lot of different substances, found the ones that worked best. Uh, He developed uh, the best way of doing a trip with an individual, and then he found it was very helpful to have groups uh, share experiences. And there were a lot of things that had to be worked out to make that the most efficacious. So all of these things are covered in the book. And also tried to help a little bit by um, mentioning resources in the end of the book. And, of course, one of the problems with resources, there's been an awful lot of material published. And a lot of the work was done by people who knew what they were doing, and a lot of the work was done by people who didn't know what they were doing. In fact, as uh, Hoffer, if you saw this BBC tape that was broadcast on uh, Arts and Entertainment, I think in September, and you saw Abram Hoffer, he pointed out one of his colleagues went to great length to prove that LSD could not cure alcoholics. So this is what you contend with, so I hope some of the guidelines there are helpful in evaluating the literature. Yes? Can you talk, talk more about 2CB? Uh, how's that again? Can you talk more about 2CB? How, how, how old it is? What is what are some I other refer people? you to that marvelous book, Tea Call, uh, by the Shelgans, and uh, there's a chapter on it. And, of course, as he did with uh, all of the uh, substances that he developed, uh, you know, there are 179 formulas that are described in detail in the back of the book. And uh, with each one, uh, there's a summary of the results that were obtained with that particular substance. And in my book, uh, Thanatos to Eros, the first book uh, that, uh, that I wrote, I also have a chapter on 2CB in my you might go to those sources and, uh, and find more information. Yes? I have a question. Uh, I really respect your sharing with us uh, your wisdom and your long experience. And my question has to do with uh, something analogous to psychotherapy and that some people benefit from a more meditative approach to psychotherapy at times. Other people that benefit from a more ecstatic or more Apollonian or Dionysian approach to psychotherapy. And that in terms of psychedelics, uh, the same might be true, that there might be a a multi-spectrum approach, a variety of different approaches that might be suitable for particular people or for the same person at particular times in their life. And that a purely meditative approach uh, might be entirely fine for a person throughout that person's lifespan, or it might also be the case that for some of, for that same person, or for a number of people, some other approaches might also be beneficial. Now, is that a question? Well, <laughs> I'm asking for your response to that. I don't know if everyone heard him, and, and uh, I'm not sure that I heard him really well, but I'll, I'll feed it back and tell me if it's right. Uh, but it's, uh, it's what I said a little bit earlier. You know, we're all different. And, well, uh, for example, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, mental stability is the first thing to acquire. And they have 40 different practices to develop mental stability because they recognize that everyone's different and some things work well for one person and some for another. And this gentleman just stated that... Uh, it's, it's true across the board. Some people can get more out of psychedelics and maybe different ways of using psychedelics. And some people may benefit from meditation. And other people get very quickly bored with meditation and think it's a waste of time. So the point is that there are a lot of different paths and a lot of different ways. And uh, the best thing is to read what different people have to offer and see what feels right to you and what appeals to you and pick your own path. A little bit more praise. Um, I'm 32 and I'm finding that people my age are starting to really close themselves off. Um, they sort of want the white picket fence and the, the van in the house and that's 
that's great, but it's just really inspiring to hear somebody who's, who's older and who's, uh, who hasn't done that. Because the biggest fear that I have is to be older and to look back and say, gosh, what a waste it's been. And so it's really great to see someone who's, you know, sort of gone in the opposite direction from what I see as a standard here in America. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, two more questions. Yes, over there. I, I really appreciate your talk to us today. And you mentioned the Journal of Human, Humanistic Psychology article that you submitted to the journal. I was wondering if there's anything else that, in, that you've written that contains most of or a lot of what you've said to us today, because, you know, it's something that I'd really recommend to just about anybody who is uh, considering using psychedelics or starting out. Um, there is a lot in that journal of humanistic psychology, uh, but at the same time, there's a lot that I thought about in preparation for this uh, particular talk. A lot of what I said about the trained user I haven't written before, although I've mentioned it. Uh, I mentioned it in an art, uh, article that I wrote uh, for, the, for Gnosis Magazine, the issue Winter 1993, uh, using psychedelics wisely. That's, I feel that that's probably my best statement in a, in a short period of time. I've tried to cover most of these points. Uh, but... Uh, uh, if Sasha gets his way, <laughs> I'm going to have to get busy and write up more of this stuff. And I, was, I was hoping I was getting old enough to retire more, but I don't think he's going to let me. <laughs> yes? Could you say something a beginner in psychedelic online, a guy, a therapist, someone to train them as a that's a difficult question because of, a, of the status of the law. And, you know, <clears throat> there are a number of these people around and available, but, you know, they, they can't advertise themselves, you know. As a matter of fact, it's, it's even dangerous to talk to people if, some, if it turns out that they're talking to the wrong person and he carries the word away, and he's, he's in for it. So uh, it's very difficult, and I think... Maybe the best thing to do is to come to groups like this and get to talking to people around and, and uh, see what other people have experienced and who they know and what suggestions they might have. But it, it's a touch, this security problem is really, really touching. And it's robbing us of a lot of information. That's the sad part. You know, I don't think it's cut down use very much. Uh, but... <laughs> What it has done is enormously increase ignorant use because the information isn't available to the people who really like to explore these things. So I, I just think that was number two, so that's it. Thank, thank you very much. listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Of course, you know that I'm going to say something about that comment from the young woman who said that she appreciated Myron for, among other things, being old, or older, <laughs> and uh, still publicly speaking about psychedelics. Well, as I watched the video of this talk, uh, I too thought of how great it was that an old guy like Myron was still up there doing his thing. <laughs> and then I realized that when Myron gave this talk, he was only 10 months older than I am right now. <laughs> so uh, it's nice to hear that us dusty old farts are still appreciated. Uh, not that Myron was dusty, of course. Also, uh, I want to connect with what Myron said about ways in which a good meditation practice can put a person into a state of bliss. Well, back when Myron was still living up in the high desert in Lone Pine, where his widow Jean still lives today, he began each day sitting on his outside deck, looking at the Sierra Nevada mountains and meditating. 
Now, when I stayed there with him and Gene, I usually got up early and uh, took a hike among the giant boulders that littered the desert around their home. And by the time I returned to their house, I would see Myron sitting in a chair, wrapped in his old red robe, and meditating. When uh, he would finish and come back into the house, there was uh, no other way to describe the look on his face other than to say he was in a deep state of bliss. More than anything else, seeing Myron after he finished his morning meditation has convinced me of the worth of this practice. And if you're interested in reading the article that Myron wrote for the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, the one that he titled, Are Psychedelics Useful in the Practice of Buddhism?, I put a link to that article on the Salon's website in today's program notes. And I've also embedded a short video taken on a walk that I took with Myron and Jean, which will give you a little better idea of what life is like in their high desert home. Now, do you remember when, uh, at one point, Myron said that the core of every person is divine? Well, when I heard him say that, I had to pause the recording to give that comment a little thought. You see, as a former Catholic, there are some buzzwords that can just tip me the wrong way. And the word divine is one of them, because it carries a connotation of, well, of another concept that most people call God. But if you think about that for a moment, well, that's just a word too. Nonetheless, I think that I know exactly what Myron was talking about. You see, one time there was this uh, very deep psychedelic experience that I had in which I saw a river of glowing light that was pouring up out of a deep well. Had I described it to Myron, uh, I'm sure he would have confirmed that for me, in fact, it was a true mystical experience. And the truth is, my life has never been the same since that moment. You see, in just an instant, I realized that that river of light was, in fact, the core of my being. And it wasn't light that was flowing. It was love, pure flowing love. And it was flowing through everyone and everything. The cosmos, I believe, at its core, is simply love. So, when people ask me if I believe in God, I have to say no if that implies that I believe in a supreme being of some sort. But what I do believe in is that there is a source of energy that flows through us all. It flows throughout the entire cosmos, and while some people call it God, I happen to believe that this all-encompassing energy field can be better described simply as love. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>